Welcome to Sounds Like History. In this episode, Mark Reed, editor-in-chief of Canada's History Magazine, speaks with Rochelle Chasson-Taylor, music historian and archivist at Library and Archives Canada, about an early recording of popular children's songs and a Scottish folk song with an arrangement by Joseph Haydn performed by a beloved Canadian singer. Rochelle, the historical recording we are about to hear is of a little-known type, early recordings for children. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, in fact, it was exceedingly difficult to find more than just snippets of information about trends in children's recordings from this period. I don't think, actually, that children's entertainment was necessarily a great priority for the recording industry in the early years. The 1920s, of course, antedate the stars of music for children's entertainment that we know, like Raffi or Sharon, Lois, and Bram. But I think it's safe to say that from what I know about our collections at Library and Archives Canada, and as a music historian, that children's recordings constituted a fraction of the industry of the time, and that the audience for these recordings would not have been as, well, democratic as it is today. After all, we might assume that record-playing technology and indeed leisure time were not as accessible to everyone back then. But I would just like to mention one aspect that can possibly be gleaned from actually listening to this recording. Although the artist is American and the recordings were made in Canada, the presentation, the pronunciation of the words and the content are thoroughly English not North American. And if you think about the period after the First World War and what was going on in institutions and schools, and this has been analyzed by historians, a kind of uh, rapprochement was intensifying between Great Britain and North America at this time. Not that it didn't exist before, we all know that many Canadians and Americans have British origins. But these recordings do not account for the many North American variants of the same nursery rhymes that were circulating in this period. Shakespeare's works were being ramped up and more actively promoted in North America's education systems than before. And this also has been noted by cultural historians and related to subsequent developments of political alliances. Could it be that these recordings were, on a certain level, part of that movement, maybe. But anyway, apart from these theories, um, suffice to say that songs for little people are real vintage 20s recordings, obviously produced with care, with orchestral accompaniment, and probably destined to an upper middle class kids audience whose parents saw some merit in perpetuating English nursery rhyme traditions. And the very fine tenor on these recordings, Lewis James, is an interesting, if little-known, artist. You know, that begs the question, who was Lewis James, and what other recordings did he make? Lewis James uh, was born in Dexter, Michigan, in 1892. He was a member of the hugely popular group, the Revelers, and also of other groups like the Shannon Four and the Criterion Trio. He had many top 10 hits during that time, 
including My Baby Boy, Till We Meet Again, What'll I Do, among others. He died in 1959. So one of these groups, the Revelers, were stars, really, stars on radio and in vaudeville, as well as in the recording studio. They had a recording contract with Victor, the same label as Songs for Little People, but made extra money by moonlighting under pseudonyms for other labels. And the context, well, these were the Roaring Twenties, need I say more? So if you know the 1997 movie, The Comedian Harmonists, you can relate to the sound of the revelers. In 1927, unemployed German-Jewish actor Harry Frommermann was inspired by the revelers to create a German group of a similar type and appeal. They attained international fame and popularity, but eventually ran into trouble when the Nazis came to power, because half of the comedian harmonists was Jewish. The revelers, for their part, were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 1999, and Louis James with them. James also sang under the pseudonym Harold Harvey, which he used for Songs for Little People. What about the contents of this excerpt? It's interesting that all but one of the songs, We've Come to See Miss Jenny Jones, feature only one first verse. My guess is that that had something to do with educating children to the tune first and then letting them supply subsequent verses. The history and origins of most nursery rhymes reflect events in history. Humpty Dumpty was in fact believed to be a large cannon set up on a wall surrounding the town of Colchester to defend the Royalists during the English Civil War in the 17th century. It fell off the wall and broke to bits, and all the king's horses and men, the royalists, could not repair it, and thus Colchester fell to Cromwell's troops. Little Boy Blue refers to an earlier time under King Henry VIII and to Cardinal Wolseley, who was known to blow his horn in arrogance about his wealth. And Jack B. Nimble is about the famous English pirate of the 16th century known as Black Jack who was notorious for his ability to escape from the authorities, and so on. So nursery rhymes are part of a folk tradition that can include the people's voice about political or social issues, and that is fascinating. I doubt, however, that these hidden meetings were the stuff of children's record marketing in the 1920s. It is fair to assume that Songs for Little People attests to the demand in Canada and in North America in general, for tools that would enable children to learn and perpetuate a much-loved cultural heritage from one of their founding communities. Well, let's give it a listen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack jump over the candlestick. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack jump over the candlestick.
little boy blue, come blow your horn. The sheep's in the meadow, the cow's in the corn. Where's the boy that looks after the sheep? He's under the haycock, fast asleep. Will you wake him? No, not I. For if I do, he'll be sure to cry. The frog, he was the wooing go. I hope that Rolly, whether his mother would let him or no, with a roly-poly gammon and spinach, I hope that that's a Neroli. It was the frog lived in the well. I hope that Rolly, the merry mouse lived under the mill with a roly-poly gammon and spinach, I hope that that's a Neroli. Georgie, porgy, pudding and pie Kissed the girls and made them cry When the girls came out to play Georgie, porgy, ran away We come to see Miss Jenny Jones Jenny Jones, Jenny Jones We come to see Miss Jenny Jones How is she today? She's washing We're right glad to hear it, yes, to hear it, to hear it. We're right glad to hear it, yes, and how is she today? We come to see Miss Jenny Jones, Jenny Jones, Jenny Jones. We come to see Miss Jenny Jones, how is she today? She's ironing. We're right glad to hear it, yes, to hear it, to hear it. We're right glad to hear it, yes, and how is she today? Our next song is by Sarah Fischer, My Mother Bids Me to Bind My Hair, a Scottish song by Anne Hume, arranged by Joseph Hayden. Rochelle, for this recording, I think we could start with the performing artist before discussing the very interesting song she recorded. So, who was Sarah Fischer? Well, the quick answer to that is Sarah Fischer was a great artist who, in my opinion, deserves to be recognized and celebrated by Canadians far and wide. And not just for her artistic merits, but for her personal courage and her contribution to the advancement of music in Canada. She was born in Paris in 1896 and came to Canada in 1909 with her mother and sister. Her father, Jacob, was a hat manufacturer who had immigrated earlier. She almost immediately began to work as an operator for the Bell Telephone Company in Montreal during the day, and in the evenings she studied music and took voice lessons. In 1917, she won the prestigious Strathcona Scholarship, which enabled her to travel to London to study at the Royal College of Music. I should add that the Strathcona Scholarship was also known as the McGill Scholarship, and still today the music faculty at McGill is in the Strathcona building. Um, So there's a lot of history in just the name Strathcona. So while still a student there, I'm speaking of the Royal College of Music in London, she made her London debut at the Old Vic as a countess in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. She sang Pamina, in Mozart's The Magic Flute, on what was to be a historical moment, the first opera ever broadcast by the BBC from Covent Gardens. 
The year was 1923, and Sara Fischer was doing all of this while still a student, supporting herself through her art. Sara Fischer began touring Europe with the British National Opera Company in 1925, and also gave a number of recitals in London in venues such as Wigmore Hall, the Great Albert Hall, and Queen's Hall. Then, in November of 1925, she joined the Opéra Comique in Paris and attained world fame uh, singing more than 30 leading opera roles, which is really an enormous quantity of music and acting by any standards. She had become an international star of the opera scene and also a celebrated recitalist specializing in French art song, often performing with the composers themselves at the piano. She toured extensively and made trips back to Canada on tour as well. This part of her career lasted some 20 years, and then she returned to Montreal definitively. What made her return to Montreal? I mean, presumably an opera career such as Sarah Fischer's was likely to last longer than just a couple decades. Indeed, Sarah Fischer began to think about returning to Canada as the Second World War progressed. Wars, we all know, are terrible for everyone, and artists are no exception. In addition to being in danger for her safety as a Jewish person, work became increasingly scarce for the same very sad reason. Her father, now a widower, was ill and in need of her help, and she truly cared about developing opportunities for music in Canada. So in 1940, Fischer was back in Montreal, rolling up her sleeves, and she opened a voice studio and begun an enterprising period that saw her founding the Sarah Fischer Concerts in Montreal here to promote established Canadian musicians and present new Canadian talent. It was a great and it was really an immense success. But again, it was a product of determination, personal investment, and vision. Working out of her apartment, Fischer ran all aspects of the concerts, from performance contracts to publicity and ticket sales. I'm quoting her, I give talent a public hearing, she would say and that vision translated into concert debuts for over 650 musicians, including contralto Maureen Forrester, composer Violet Archer, and pianists Robert Silverman and André Laplante, who had absolutely glorious careers. But in addition to all of this, she instituted the Sarah Fischer Scholarships for Canadian musicians, be they singers or instrumentalists, she was a devoted and tireless teacher and even offered scholarships to her most promising voice students. She explained these initiatives, quote, I'm thanking Canada for my scholarship, and she's referring to the Strathcona Scholarship, 55 years ago, which sent me to London and opened the musical world to me, end of quote. Among her numerous distinctions, awards, and honors, in 1967, all of her costumes from past opera performances were displayed at the Hospitality Pavilion at Montreal's Expo 67, and her recordings were reissued on a private compilation called Sarah Fischer, 
for release in Canada. Sarah Fischer died in 1975. This aspect of her legacy lives on in the careers of the many prominent artists her initiatives helped to support and in their own legacies as well. Now, the recording we are about to hear is of the great Sarah Fischer performing an old Scottish song set to music by Joseph Haydn. This seems like a rather interesting combination. Indeed it is. But uh, I should say that in spite of the scratchy-sounding piano introduction due to wear and tear on the Filmophone technology, this recording is superb, and I'll explain also a little bit about the piece. Uh, but first, I should say that Fischer's rich mezzo voice and expressive phrasing, as well as her impeccable diction, render Haydn's setting of Anne Hume's text haunting and memorable. In many interconnected ways, the song was, has a feminist bent as well. Uh, it was written by a woman, Anne Hume Hunter, who had to earn a part of her living through writing after the death of her husband, a celebrated surgeon and a friend of Joseph Haydn's who spent long periods of time in London where the Hume-Hunter family lived. The song harkens back to an old Scottish ballad and tells of a mother who bids her daughter to cheer up and have a bit of fun, even if her boyfriend, whose name is Lubin, is away. Quote, for why sit still and weep while others dance and play? End of quote. I can't help thinking that Sarah Fischer would have wholeheartedly agreed. Never one to sit still and weep, she rolled up her sleeves as a mother instructs her daughter to do in this song, forging ahead relentlessly in her career, finding opportunities for personal independence and for nurturing expression in others, especially her fellow Canadians. Well, let's give it a listen. Behind my hair with the of rose 
Well, that was fantastic. Thanks so much, Rochelle, for sharing this information and these songs with us. It was an immense pleasure for me, and thank you. Sounds Like History is an exploration of the Virtual Gramophone Collection and was produced by Canada's History Society in collaboration with Library and Archives Canada. Learn more at canadashistory.ca.